0: This is the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we look at one of the most perplexing passages of Jesus's ministry, asking if this is about the end times or ancient times. Matthew 24. What are we talking
1: about? What are we talking about? So, um, I'm really excited about this podcast. I have tried to figure out how to teach this. This is one of those passages that I think we, we just approach so wrong and and i I have tried to improve upon it, and I think i may be I may be close um i don't know if I've gotten it in the past, but I may be close um, and so we're going to try to put it together i'm going to try to present this in a way we're going to go through a lot of material, and we're going to cover two chapters of matthew today twenty four and twenty five we're going to try to put it all together and present it in a way that helps us understand this passage in context. I feel like we pull it out of its context. We read it, particularly Matthew 24, in a vacuum, and it totally screws up what we're trying, what Jesus is doing in his rabbinical teaching. So we're going to try to teach it all at once. So let's set the stage. Read us the first three verses, Brett, of Matthew 24.
0: Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? He asked. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age?
1: All right. So they want to know, and we've talked about this age before. We talked about with John the Baptist. We've talked about this a few times, this Jewish eschatology. They have this age, which is the age of this world, and then the age to come. So they're still trying to figure out three years into Jesus' teaching, like, how are these ages interacting here? When is the age to come going to show up? When is this age going to be done away with? And they've got some really logical, um, reasonable questions based on what Jesus has said. On their way out of Jerusalem, they notice and they make comment about the amazing building project of King Herod the Great. And, and it was pretty impressive. Um, so one of Herod the Great's greatest building projects was the construction of the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount was essentially a gigantic box. And we have a picture of that gigantic box that we'll, we'll show you, kind of an artist's rendition of what that must have looked like in the ancient world. And maybe someday we'll talk more about that Temple Mount. You can come on one of my trips and we'll talk more about the Temple Mount and you get to see it, won't you, in person, Brent? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We would not hold that back from you. but And this box, the construction of this box was not just the size of the box itself, but how he constructed it. It's one of those things that to this day we still don't know. Some of the stones that are there are just incredible. So we have another picture of just the wall itself. Like just, you see all these stones. Now the upper portion of that wall is a reconstruction under two different periods of history or maybe even three and possibly even four if you go all the way up to the top. But those large stones that you see towards the bottom of that picture are actually herod stones and these things are massive uh brent's got a couple more pictures he'll show you here um but these pictures are these stones like look at that big stone that sits just above the head of the people walking right there uh that is a that is a was that a large stone brent quite large <laughs> okay another we have another picture here of chris standing next to that gives you a reference point of how large some of these stones are he's tall guy Yeah, these are thousands and thousands of pounds. To this day, we don't know how Herod moved some of these stones. We literally couldn't do it with our technology today in Jerusalem anyway. We would have to get in about six or seven different cranes. There is one—these are baby stones. The ones that you're seeing in these pictures are babies. I don't take my students down below into the rabbi tunnels, but I have been down below in the rabbi tunnels where you see the bottom of the foundation of this box, the temple mount, and there is one stone there come on my trips I'll give you the exact specifications of the stone but it comes out to weigh about 2000 tons that's 4 million pounds um It would take us like six or seven of our largest cranes today to move that thing around Jerusalem. We have no idea literally how—we have hunches, but we have no idea how Herod pulled that off. And these things fit together perfectly if you look at that picture still of Chris standing there. Those stones just—you can't even slip a piece of paper between these stones. No mortar, perfectly quarried. So the, the disciples are walking by this, and they're like, oh, Jesus, check out this. Like this must have just been mesmerizing to
0: see this building project. I guess Windows I should have said place. if your if your podcast player supports uh, chapter artwork, you're seeing these pictures as we're talking about right. them. If you don't have a podcast player doing that, we also have these photos in a presentation. So yeah, grab the link and look at the presentation, or look in your podcast player. Check out these pictures. It's the the scale of these stones is very difficult to wrap your mind around, even standing in front of them it's boggling the mind. Absolutely. Yep. So at this point in history, the
1: temple construction, the temple mount construction has not even been completed yet. It's getting close, but it hasn't even been completed. Uh, The disciples are probably just everybody, not just the disciples, like just what a huge project to watch. So, so Jesus says, Oh yeah, you think this is something? Well, all these stones are going to lie one on top of another. And, um, and which actually came to be, in fact, Brent, you have another picture of the stones laying some of the original stones from when the Romans threw them down at the destruction of the temple that Je- Jesus actually said, what's going to happen. The stones are still sitting there, uh, literally at the bottom of the temple mount. It's pretty, pretty stunning to see, but, uh, there's that picture in there too, but the disciples want to know like, well, my goodness, this must be something amazing, Like, exactly when is this destruction supposed to come? And usually with that, we are launched into one of the most intensely discussed discourses surrounding what we would call the end times. Like we immediately click into our, when is Jesus coming back? And how are we going to tell the future mentality? And we start drowning in all the details here. I mean, it's
0: right there in the NIV subtitles, the destruction of the temple and the signs of the end times. Yeah.
1: And that's actually a bold move by the NIV. This is NIV you're looking at? Yeah. Yeah. That's a bold move to even say destruction of Jerusalem. Because there's a lot of people here that think this whole chapter is about end times. But uh, that's just part of, um, I can remember writing a paper in Bible college About this chapter, Matthew 24, and the argument about which part of the chapter was talking about what? Was the entire conversation about the end times? Was the first part about the destruction of Jerusalem and the last part about the end times? And if so, what verse does the shift take place? Like we were so we were so caught up in what I feel like was totally the wrong he's he's directly answering the disciples' questions about what did they ask him directly? Now that's not that's not fair. That's not a fair question. Let me backtrack. Because I did ask him about two things. When will these stones all be lying on top of one another?
0: And what was the second part of their question, Brent? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Right. So let's not throw all these people that have this
1: conversation under the bus, because that's what it appears like the disciples are really asking. Jesus is having a different conversation. So before we get started, let me make the case up front. This entire discourse is about the destruction of Jerusalem. That is the topic that got Jesus into this conversation, that is the topic that sits at the center of the conversation, and there is nothing in Jesus' words that would warrant a shift in subject matter. In fact, to turn this into a dialogue about the end times would completely ignore Jesus' closing points about not knowing the future. So nevertheless, let's walk through the passages and try to see how Jesus interacts with this question from the disciples. They want to know, when is all of this destruction going to take place? And here's how Jesus responds.
0: Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith, and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So, when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Jesus didn't say that, by the way. Let the reader understand. Yeah, that's just a, to clear that it's up. a parenthetical. <laughs> it is. It's set off by dashes in the yeah, NIV, so it right. kind of like right, kind of could be Jesus, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Then let the, there's no punctuation in the original text. So it's kind of like, correct. what a challenge to like yes. try to sort through all of this stuff. <laughs> uh, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again.
1: All right. So, Jesus' point here, if we don't get all wound up around eschatological imagery and we just listen to what Jesus is saying, Jesus' point to his disciples when they hear, when they ask, when is all this going to take place? He says, You are going to hear rumors about coming destruction and false messiahs who will promise deliverance. Do not be deceived by their promises. The world is going to get crazy. This is unavoidable. So Jesus, I think Jesus can see impending destruction coming. He knows that this thing that the game, he doesn't have to put on his gog goggles and look into the future to know. Simply by looking at the corruption of the priesthood, this is not sustainable. This system, this temple, is going to crumble, and and all of this is going to be destroyed. It's coming. I promise. And there are going to be a lot of people. I mean, we could say this about about today. I did I did get a frustrated email from a listener the other day, my first, um, about how, how much I, I critique America. And I think there's just a lot of good reason to do that. It's our world. We need to think critically about the world we live in. I try not to be too hard or too whatever, um, too prophetic here. But the world that we're living in now is not sustainable. Like I can promise you that. Like the America we know today, built on the debt systems that we have, the economic systems we've created, the way that we use the free market, it's not sustainable. Like the world, it it will either change or it will crumble. Like I could make these same kind of predictions. I don't know when it's coming, but the system that we know is either going to change or it will be destroyed. And I could also tell you, I promise you that there will be lots of people, presidential candidates, like teachers of all kinds, public figures. There'll be authors. There'll be a lot of talk show, radio talk show hosts, podcasters, hopefully not our podcast. There are going to be lots of people that are going to claim we have the answer, like we can save it. Jesus says, no, no, this, this system is doomed. This system is doomed. We're not claiming to have the answers necessarily. I sure hope not.
0: I mean, other than like the text. We're hoping to, um, Jesus. We're hoping to present a perspective. Sure. Absolutely. But the reader, or the listener, rather. Let the listener understand. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So this is his point. His point is like, this is going down. This is unavoidable. Stuff's going to get crazy up in here. That's Jesus's, that's how I would paraphrase it. All right? Keep moving.
0: If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. It's Trump. No, it's Bernie Sanders.
1: No, it's whoever. Like, we have a tendency to be like, this is it. This is, no,
0: Jesus says, don't, don't, don't get wound up about that. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out, or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. A couple of lines from Isaiah, by the way. Yep. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away.
1: All right. It's important to see this generation will not pass away. Jesus is talking about impending current doom on Jerusalem. This is his. This is his larger point, and and there's a lot of weird stuff in there, right, Brent? Like uh, sign of the Son of Man in heaven, angel coming with trumpet and power and glory, and, and 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 gathering the elect from the four winds. Like that's weird. I wonder where all that language comes from. Any hunches, Brent? Mm, it's got to be in the text. To be in the text. Like this whole section here is full of Jesus using multiple prophetic images from the Nevehim What was the Nevi'im? The writings, not quite. No, Let's catch with him. the prophets. Prophets. Sorry. He uses a lot of quotations from the prophets to talk about coming destruction. He's got Daniel in there. You already referenced which quotation? Isaiah. Isaiah. Lots of. We could even argue about some other phrases and where they're being pulled from. But all these things are coming out of their Bible. Jesus isn't making stuff up. Jesus quotes prophets whose messages will be about perseverance, and he reiterates this perseverance. With this essential message, you are going to have to persevere through these tough times. There will be no escaping it. So we started by saying that Jesus was saying, stuff's going to get crazy. The world's going to get nuts. People are going to promise. Don't believe them. You're just going to have to go through this. There's going to be no escaping what's coming on the world. All right? Go ahead and keep... Uh, Jesus is going to continue with more confirmation of these points as he continues to talk to his disciples. Go ahead and keep us moving, Brent.
0: But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man two men will be in the field one will be taken and the other left two women will be grinding with a handmill one will be taken and the other left
1: can i just i'm going to stop you right there brent cuz we we have this whole left behind thing going on just out of curiosity he's referencing noah right uh, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away which ones got taken away brent the the good ones
0: or the wicked ones uh, in the flood specifically? Yeah, in the flood story. Well, taken away in the sense of taken away to safety or taken away no, taken from away life? Taken away as if by the waters. The not good ones. The wicked, right? Yeah. In the parable of like, say, the fish in the net, which ones they throw
1: away, the good fish or the bad fish? They throw away the bad fish. Uh, let's say the, the wheat and the, and the weeds. Which ones get taken away? Uh, they burn up the weeds. They burn up the weeds. So everything that's good always remains. Right. Okay, so let, let me see here. So what is the only logical conclusion here? This is how it will be coming in the days of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Which one is left? Well, the good one. The good one. When when there's two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. Who's left? The good one. The good one. I I did have a Bible college professor who I will give mad props to. Mr. Dale Cornett, and he he taught eschatology class, and he would talk about this... um, this dispensational eschatology, and he would say, a theology best left behind. (laughs) And he would remind us all throughout the class, you want to be left behind. That's good theology.
0: You want to be left behind. So anyway, I just had to interrupt there and channel a little bit of cornet there, but go ahead. Therefore keep watch, because you did not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him.
1: So after all that fun stuff about left behind, I don't even think this stuff is about eschatology in the first place. I've just said this whole conversation is about what, Brett?
0: Uh, About the destruction of the temple. Right.
1: And if you're going to talk about destruction, destruction of Jerusalem, people that are taken away are going to be slaughtered, killed, taken into slavery. That's what, this, that's what this reference is about. Please notice that Jesus' point is that nobody will be ready for this coming destruction. Nobody can tell the future, and destruction always comes when people least expect it. Jesus' point is keep watch and be ready, because you do not know when this will happen. And I just love that he says that blatantly in this passage, and yet people use this all the time to talk about end times and how we can use this as the signs of the end times. And he just says, no, you'll never know.
0: <laughs> anyway. Enough. Go
1: ahead and keep moving, Brent.
0: Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Kind right. Of a throwback to Joseph there, yeah, yeah. almost, and sure. then and then it's like, well, wait a minute. But if he's not doing that, right? Well, and Joseph, yeah, you're talking Joseph in Genesis, right? And that's
1: another story of perseverance. Like those kind of things would be uh, just great references because that seems to be his point. Remember his point right before this was keep watch and be ready because you do not know when all this is going to happen. But all of this raises a question: What am I supposed to be ready for? And what am I supposed to be ready with? How do I make sure that I'm doing what I need to be doing to be ready? This teaching here, this last paragraph is a little tricky, but pretty straightforward, especially in the context of the last few days and a withered fig tree in the distance. The answer to the question about the steward is easy. The faithful and wise steward represents the who, Brent? The Pharisees, basically. Uh, not the teachers, the priests, the, the, priest, the priest. The priesthood, the right? However, as we have seen, they are certainly not getting the job done. So the fa- he says, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household? That would be the priest's. The priests are in charge, but they're not doing their job. So if we see this discourse as the one conversation given, if we don't see it as different conversations about the end times, but we see this as Jesus's response to the disciples that are like, we don't get it. Like, what is about all this destruction? When is this going to happen? And Jesus goes into this long discourse Given in response to the disciples' question, it helps us see the packaged answer Jesus is giving them without getting lost in our infatuations about eschatology. Jesus' response would sound something like this. And we're going to put this on a slide for you so you can actually see it.
0: I think seeing this train of thought is helpful. And just just to set the context again, just so we're in the right frame of mind. The last podcast was about the woes. He was directly addressing the Pharisees. Correct. Then they leave the temple at the beginning of this chapter. Correct. And his disciples come and talk to him. This whole conversation is Jesus and his disciples. Yes. Yes. And this, this in
1: Matthew, all of these confrontations take place on the Temple Mount. And remember, we kept bouncing back and forth between Sadducees and Pharisees and Sadducees and Pharisees. And this group would come and try to trap him. And then Jesus would just let him have it and trick him. And then, and then this group would come and try to trap him. But he would con- just confound them. And then the other group would come in and the other group. So he's going back and forth with the two different forms of Jewish leadership, corrupt priestly leadership and self-righteous religious leadership. And he's bouncing back and forth. So now they're leaving that temple mount and the temple mount would be the home court advantage of who? Uh, The Sadducees. Sadducees. And Jesus has some critiques of this broken system. And so... If I were to just outline the teaching here, it's going to be these like, uh, looks like I have six points here. Ooh, I need, I need I need a seven. Ooh, uh, you're going, number one, you're going to hear rumors of the ends of the end and false messiahs. Do not believe it. Number two, the world is going to get crazy and there's nothing you can do to stop it. Number three, all of this is going to happen and you will have to persevere. Number four, you will have to be ready. Being ready means taking care of God's people. Number five, the priests aren't doing it, so you're going to have to. And finally, number six, persevere and be ready by taking care of the oppressed. Kind of a reiteration of these points here. All right? So having said that, uh, after addressing the disciples' questions about the coming of the end, which really isn't the end end, but the end of Jerusalem, Jesus reinforces his teaching like he's done so many times before by telling a series of what, Brent? Parables. Parables. Jesus is going to tell us three parables in rapid succession. The parable of the the bridesmaids, the parable of the talents, and the parable of the sheep and goats. Rather than deal with all of these parables separately, I wanted to put these in the same podcast so we can see that Jesus is choosing to tell these three parables As a part of his response to the disciples' question, we need to keep all of this at play. Whatever Jesus says, these parables should reinforce or clarify or expand on what he just said in Matthew 24.
0: Now, is this one of those situations where it feels like three parables, but it's actually just one? In this case, no, and that will happen in like
1: Luke. Matthew doesn't do that same thing. Matthew loves to tell us multiple parables, and Matthew loves to tell us parables back to back so that we can understand a larger body of teaching. Did you just actually say it this way? Well, we'll never know, but it's how Matthew records it. And so Matthew does love to do this. So these are three separate parables. We are going to want to ask questions about remezes, drosh, levels of interpretation. But before we do that, we need to keep in mind what Jesus just did, and we just need to hear... In light of the teaching points he just made, these three parables, and let's just deal with Peshat. Uh, go through all three and just think Peshat all at once. All right. So Brent, give us the give us the bridesmaids.
0: At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut later the others also came lord lord they said open the door for us but he replied truly i tell you i don't know you therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour all right so the paschat of this teaching should be somewhat obvious jesus is telling a parable
1: to reinforce the need to be ready which we already looked at in the last in the last chapter and the foolishness of not being prepared as we've looked at already, the context of Jewish weddings helps us understand the foolishness of the bridesmaids. Remember, in a Jewish wedding, the couple, after the couple's betrothal, the groom goes away to do what, Brent? To build onto his father's house. To build onto the father's house. And how long is this going to take? Who knows? We don't know. All we know is that someday that groom's going to show up. It could be weeks. It could be months. It could even be years. Typically not. But he's going to show up. And he could show up when? Is he going to show up same time every day? Nope. And just whenever he happens to get there. He could show up in the middle of the night. And if he does, there will be a lookout. They will wake everybody up and they will start a massive party. So how foolish would it be um, if the bridesmaids are not ready for the great celebration? This would be a matter of great anticipation for the whole village. Wouldn't everybody be ready for the coming of the groom? And yet Jesus has already suggested God's people. There are some of God's people who are not, those leaders are not ready for the coming of the groom. All right, give us the next parable,
0: Brent. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold to another two bags and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more." So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth.
1: All right. So we'll talk more about the confusing details of this parable, at least some of them here coming up in a moment, but we'll just consider the Peshat observations of this teaching. Jesus wants to convey that people will have to give an account for what they have done with God's kingdom. How have they used what God has given them? It might also be worth noting here that the amount of the talents may have to be, may be pointing to something because we said numbers matter, right, Brent? They do. Okay. So there was, the first person has how many talents? Five. The first is given five. Could that be, what is that represented above? The books of Moses. Could it be that some people have a very in-depth working knowledge of all that God has asked of them? And then the next person is given how many talents? Two, representing the tablets of Moses. All right. There's a good chance that some people just have a basic understanding, like the like the most primitive, basic understanding of what the law is. Ten commandments. And then w- some people are given, and then one person is given what? One. One. Like, and all they have is just God. Like, one was always symbolic of just God. Ichad, God is one. Like, all they have is God. They don't have, no, they have, they're totally ignorant of the law, and yet they still have an awareness of who God is and an inner Conscience, and a, a clock that tells them what God is doing in the world. You don't suppose that there could be any hints that those are that there are those with deep knowledge of the text, those who have basic knowledge of the text, and those that only have their experience of God. God expects you to use what you have to bless the world around you. It doesn't matter how much you know. It doesn't matter if you're a five talent person, a books of Moses person, a tablets of Moses person, or a nothing person. Whatever you do have.
0: Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. All right. So we're very familiar
1: with this parable, the Peshat within this teaching, also obvious. We typically take away from this teaching, uh, the criteria of the judgment. What is it that's condemned, uh, What is it that condemns the goats as goats? The sheep are praised because they take care of those in need. They hear the cry and they care for the marginalized. The goats are condemned because they do not join and partner with him in bringing justice. What was the word for justice, Brent? Remember? Mishpat. Mishpat to the world. So what does God care about? And that becomes clear in the parable. When the groom comes, will we be ready? Will we be able to give an account of how we have used what he gave us? We know what he is looking for and the account that will matter, and he will want us to care for those in need. So let's take a look at the summary. Let's summarize where we've been. We had a summary before. Let's summarize what Jesus' points now. Now that we have the three parables, let's let's see if these three parables reinforce what Jesus has already said. We'll put this on a slide as well. Here was Jesus' original point in Matthew 24. You're going to hear rumors of the end and false messiahs. Do not believe it. The world is going to get crazy, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. All of this is going to have to happen, and you will have to persevere. You will have to be ready. Being ready means taking care of God's people. He then reinforces us with three parables. The bridesmaids, which is be ready. Was that in the above summary, Brent? Yes. Absolutely. The parable of the talents, you will have to give an account... Is that in the summary up above? Absolutely. Parable of the sheep and goats, take care of the oppressed and do what the priests aren't doing. Was that in his? Yes. So all three of these parables reinforce the exact same teaching he just gave in Matthew 24. So they're reinforcing everything he's already said. And that was just on a Peshat level observation. So let's wrap this up by keep digging because the remezes, the remez to every single one of these parables should only reinforce explode with color, just take us even deeper. So if we all got our shovels here, grab your shovel, grab your text shovel, and let's uh, let's look at some remesses, shall we? Let's look at uh, the bridesmaids, all right? Let's get in our mind. Let's take our mind back to the, we're doing three parables at once. It's a little tricky. So we got the foolish bridesmaids, right? Okay. Give me Jeremiah 25. What's your verses, Brent? Go ahead and read that
0: starting in verse 8. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says this, because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. I will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. The key to looking at these references is going to be in the larger context of each remes. Would it make
1: sense in the context of Matthew 24 and 25 that Jesus would remes the use of Nebuchadnezzar as a tool of God to destroy the people and remove the sounds of joy and weddings from their midst? Would it make sense that Jesus's drosh would be the use of Rome to destroy the city of Jerusalem? Wasn't that the whole point of the conversation of Matthew 24? That is freaking brilliant. What a great remes for that parable. Like the parable itself, Justin Peshat did the, did the work, right, Brent? It reinforces teaching, right? right. But now when you see the remiss, you go, oh my goodness. Like it, it even goes deeper. It even takes us even further by saying, I've done this before. I've used, I've used Nebuchadnezzar to destroy my people in order to bring us back on track. Why wouldn't I use Rome? Absolutely. Okay. How about uh, let's go to the talents, getting getting our mind the talents. Now we had some confusing details here. Be, beyond just the remes, it would be worth noting the details of this parable are so strange to us because the context of Jesus's original parable is in the life and reign of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was one of Herod the Great's three sons. It was the Herod that he always dealt with, and mainly in the Gospel of Luke. Luke loved to talk to us about the tension between Jesus and Herod Antipas. So it's not in Matthew. That's why Matthew's parable, standing alone, is so confusing. In Jesus' original parable, which I believe is the or at least a parallel story of the ten minus found in Luke nineteen, we are given additional details that help us understand the parable of the talents in the parable of the minus. Jesus is employing a rabbinical tool known as Calvachomer Calvahomer greater and lesser. In this teaching method, the rabbi uses a negative example to portray a universal trait after making the case that the trait is true. The rabbi will then say or imply, how much more then would this same truth apply to a positive example? So in the case of the minas and the talents, the cultural backdrop is the life and reign of Herod Antipas. And I can't give you all the historical backdrop here unless we make this podcast about 40 minutes longer. But when Herod the Great died, he willed his kingdom to his three sons. Upon his death, the three sons set sail on three different ships for Rome in order to bring gifts to Caesar and ask Caesar to honor their father's will. The Jews, there were the, those were the Pharisees, the Pharisees also sent a delegation on a fourth ship to plead with Caesar not to make Antipas king. Caesar decided to name Antipas a tetrarch, which is essentially... You have all the responsibility of a king without the title, which just made Herod Antipas furious. And upon his return, Antipas Antipas blamed those Pharisees for his decision, and he made an example of those Jews who were left at home and slaughtered them by the thousands. This is the cultural setting that serves as the the backdrop to this Kalvachomer parable of the ten minas. In the parable of the talents, the parallel story uh, employs some good teaching points, but it's not what Matthew's trying to accomplish. So the point of the parable here in Matthew is that you will have to give an account for what you have been entrusted with. This is the principle that helps us understand why the king is so evil in the parable. You're like, why is God like that? God's not like that. It's because the character in that parable is not God. It's Herod Antipas and the original story hearers understand that. So back to this whole conversation about Ramez. How about
0: 2 Kings 22? What are the verses you're going to be reading here, Brent? Starting in verse 3. In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent the secretary, Shaphan, son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, Meshulam, to the temple of the Lord. He said, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, and have him get ready the money that has been brought into the temple of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have collected from the people have them entrust it to the men appointed to supervise the work on the temple and have these men pay the workers who repair the temple of the Lord, the carpenters, the builders and the masons also have them purchase timber and dress stone to repair the temple, but they need not account for the money entrusted to them because they are honest in their dealings.
1: Okay. Brilliant remiss because this remiss goes all the way back to the old Testament and finds a passage about people who are working on what building? The temple. The temple, which is the priests. And they're honest in all their dealings, so they don't even have to give an account. Because they're honest, we can trust them. But are the priests taking care of this temple in Jesus's day? Fit that description? Not quite. Absolutely not. So again, context is everything. But the story comes at a point in the story where they are cleaning out the temple and they find the book of the law. Those doing the work of restoration, not the priests in Second Kings, mind you not the priests. They, they lost the book of the law. The, the priests lost the book of the law. But they are entrusted with money to aid them in repairing the temple of God because they are honest in their dealings. They do not have to give account of what they do with the money. Do you suppose that Jesus's drash could be that those who are not priests should do the work of restoring the presence of God in the world? And if they are honest in their dealings, in response to the priest's dishonesty, they wouldn't even have to worry about giving an account, because they would have done the will of the Lord. All right, one last parable. And this one, this one to me is an easy remes, almost just indisputable. You could probably dispute these other remezes. This one to me is just... So spot on in my, in my mind, go ahead and give me Ezekiel 34. What other verses, Brent?
0: Starting in 17. As for you, my flock, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will judge between one sheep and another and between rams and goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of your pasture with your feet? Is it not enough for you to drink clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Must my flock feed on what you have trampled and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Yeah, this is so
1: good. How many sermons have you heard on the sheep and goats, Brent? How many lessons? How many sermons? Oh, well, probably quite, quite a few. Quite a few. How many of them have dealt with the remez of Ezekiel 34? Uh, don't, don't seem to recall very many oh, like that. Oh my goodness. How can we dismiss this? It's so good when you finally know what a rabbi is doing. Ugh. Here, uh, here in Ezekiel, the context is condemnation of the who? Who is Ezekiel 4 condemning specifically, Brent? Uh, I would guess the priests. Absolutely. The priesthood through the entire chapter of Ezekiel 34. So the drosh would be that God will divide his flock into sheep and goats. The context of the chapter would make it clear the deciding factor is going to be how they treat others. So I guess Jesus wasn't teaching a brand new parable, was he? Shocked? We shouldn't be. When one views the threaded teachings and the three parables together, it becomes very clear how brilliant this entire teaching over the course of two chapters is on multiple levels. The Remez Drash readings of these parables together would look something like the following. God is about to use Rome as a Nebuchadnezzar of sorts to judge the people of God. You should be faithful workers who can be trusted with the investments of the kingdom, even if the priests will not. Remember, you will be judged by how you treated others. It's the same teaching we heard in Matthew 24. Jesus put it into three parables, and it was the same teaching on a Peshat level. We dug deeper and realized this is, in fact, the same story we've been learning all along, and even more specific. The same lesson, the same meaning, the same teaching. I
0: like this Jesus guy. He's an impressive rabbi. Yes. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yes. I think we've I think we've shown that over and over again. Oh, I hope we're I hope we've done it by the time we get to the end of session 3. Whew. All right. There we go. Well, that's a that's a pretty jam-packed episode, so we'll just leave it at that. If you've got any other questions about the show, go to com. you can get a, in touch with us there. Thanks for joining us on the Baymont podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.